So it's good to see everyone this morning and I have a lot of energy for continuing with this theme of exploring and practicing with the shadow that we've been exploring for now for uh, the last two weeks. And this is the third and final, for now, exploration of the shadow. We will thoroughly have resolved all the issues by 11 this morning. And if not, we may have to have some future sessions. We'll have to check in. (laughs) So in the last two sessions, I first, in the first session, gave a general sense of what we mean by the shadow and gave some ways to practice with it in everyday life. Last time I continued with that exploration of the nature of the shadow expanded it some, in particular to focus on what we might call the shadow of spirituality and religion. Very interesting topic, Um, fascinating topic in in a way. And today I want to, uh, for those who weren't here the first two times, give a brief review and ask the question, what is the shadow and how do we work with it? And then for maybe the last two-thirds of the morning, focus especially on what we might call the collective shadow and ask the question, what's the collective shadow? And then how do we work with the collective shadow? And look at some of the links between the personal shadow or individual shadow and the shadow as it appears in groups or families. And how does that relate to the collective shadow? So it's in a way laying out a map. And I'll try continually to bring this down to everyday experience. So it's not too much, um, so not so theoretical. But it can, can, I think, give us a, a sense of a map of this territory, which to me opens up uh, a lot of areas, a lot of very fascinating areas of our practice. So three main, three main uh, areas this morning. What is the shadow and how do we work with it? What is the collective shadow? And then thirdly, how do we work with the collective shadow material, both uh, collectively and also more individually, personally? I've tried to give a simple sense of what the shadow is by talking about the shadow as that which doesn't fit with one's self-image. Quite simply, there can, you know, if you look in the literature, can be more complicated definitions. I think that's pretty straightforward and simple. It's that which doesn't fit with our self-image, either a more conscious self-image or sometimes a self-image that we don't exactly know we have, but it's structuring us. It may be something that we've adopted from our family or our culture, our society, that we sometimes don't know it's our actual self-image until we see what we're reacting to. (laughs) So that which is uh, not acceptable to our self-image, to our ideal of who we think we are. And the who can be a person, an individual. It can also be a family, a group, an organization, or a whole society. A society has a kind of self-image of who it thinks it is. And certain things are unacceptable to that self-image or don't fit into that self-image. Like torture, for example. You know, it doesn't fit in the self-image. And so it's called what? Enhanced interrogation. You know, not to, I won't go too far in that direction. But, <laughs> but uh, so you can see that language is actually very helpful to see where shadow material is, where we have these words which are camouflaging reality that can be a sign of a shadow. Personal, family, group, organization, society. So as we go through this morning, you might think, for just for yourself, of an area of, that you may regard as part of your shadow area. And 
use it as a reference point as, as we explore this territory. The term the shadow comes, to, to repeat what I've mentioned the last few times, is it comes originally, to my knowledge, from the psychology of Carl Jung. And he had a very simple definition, particularly focusing on what we might call the negative shadow, the negative parts of ourselves. He said the shadow of the individual is the negative side of the personality, the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide. And as we mentioned, there can't last two times, there can be a kind of a positive shadow, or what I, the language I used was the bright shadow. You know, could be the positive parts of ourselves that we like to hide as well. Our beauty, our brilliance, our uh, ability to be wise. You know, it's last time we mentioned how that shadow material come up, may come up when people compliment us and we try to deflect the compliments. That could be a sign of a shadow there. Most of us have shadow in that area. We are shy about acknowledging our own uh, brilliance and beauty. You know, and part of the direction of this is to let that bright shadow come to the surface as well as the dark shadow. For Jung, it was, uh, he, he talked about the work with the shadow as a moral challenge. He said it's difficult work and it's almost like an ethical uh, imperative or task to go into this difficult territory. Here, here's how he said it. The shadow is a moral problem that challenges the whole personality. For no one can become conscious of the shadow without considerable moral effort. To become conscious of it involves recognizing the dark aspects of the personality as present and real. And for most of us that means to go into territory that's somewhat scary or risky or edgy. There's a beautiful passage from the uh, poet uh, William Butler Yeats who said it this way. He, he didn't, wasn't directly talking about the shadow, but I think talking about just that courage to embrace our wholeness, to embrace all the parts of ourselves, which is really the direction of what we're pointing to. He said this, he said, it takes more courage to dig, dig deep into the dark corners of one's own soul and wrestle with what one finds than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. It takes more courage to dig deep into the dark corners of one's own soul and wrestle with what one finds than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. The core dynamic of the shadow is that historically, for whatever reason, it's difficult or impossible for us to be present with a given reality or a given experience or a given part of ourselves. It could be our anger, could be our fear, it could be that there, was, there were past experiences we had as children that were too much for us or we couldn't deal with them or were confusing and so forth. And all of us have some version of that in our background. It can be the same for a society. A society doesn't have the resources somehow to deal with something that happened or only has partial resources, like can't deal with slavery, for example, the legacy of slavery. Can't really deal fully with it, so tries to uh, not look at it too much. And it, but it keeps on surfacing, because one of the ideas about the shadow is you can't really get rid of the shadow. <laughs> It's always there. It takes tremendous effort as a society or a person to try to ignore the shadow. But it keeps on wanting to come to consciousness. So, for example, it may have been in the U.S. history an interest to not really deal fully with slavery that lasted for a lot of years, but then the impulse you know, to deal with it, because it's really, when we repress the shadow, we're really repressing part of our own nature or part of the nature of beings. And so, in, in social terms, it was impossible simply to not deal with the legacy of slavery, that there kept on coming. Basically, the impulse for freedom and justice was, in a sense, irrepressible. It kept on coming up. And 
that shadow of society had to come to the surface and be dealt with, at least partially, like in civil rights movement and so forth. So, but the, the way the shadow gets formed is that for whatever reason we can't be present. And it's not so much to assign blame. A lot of times it's just beyond our resources or beyond our understanding to be able to deal with it. But what we can do is uh, train and practice and use different tools and understandings to go into shadow territory because if the logic of how the shadow forms is that we can't be present with a given experience and we have to either put it in the margins or not deal with it, deny it, repress it and so forth. If that's how the shadow gets formed, then the way that the shadow gets dealt with is that we bring it to awareness. So in that sense, I think the logic of the shadow is quite simple. Something is unable to, we're unable to be present for something, not because we're bad people, but just because this is how things happen. You know, we all have things as a child that we couldn't deal with, you know, or we had certain conditioning, often with very well-meaning parents, in a sense, well-meaning society, but there's still shadow because there's, there can be a basic ignorance, confusion there. And so in a sense, we, the shadow develops as a, let's say, <clears throat> as a, um, <clears throat> as a child I learn to be um, controlling of my emotions, let's say, because emotional expression is something that doesn't get uh, taught, let's say or is a little uncomfortable, or there's a personality structure that gets passed down through generations of control of emotions, let's say. And so then uh, what happens to me, if that's in my shadow area, is that when strong emotions come up, I want to get the hell out of there, <laughs> right? Or I actually have learned how to even prevent them from coming up. And I develop a whole set of reasons, thoughts, assumptions and so forth that s supports me as being a good person, you know. And this is where we get into that phenomenon we talked about, a projection. I may, in a sense, um, tend to see in others what I see in myself negatively, I will project it and also see it negatively in others. So people who are very expressive of their emotions, I will say, oh, they're just blathering. Or they're just, uh, what? What, would, what language would we use? They're, we would use a negative term. They're, they're out of control. Huh? Or they're, yeah, drama queen. Or emoting too much. Or it used to be said, I think a while ago, it used to be said that women's excess emotions were evidence of hysteria. You know, that was, you know, that was some time ago. That was, uh, I think, <laughs> probably still, still, still there, so, right? <laughs> right. Jung has a powerful line. He says, that which is not loved becomes hostile to ourselves. That which we don't love in ourselves tends to become hostile. We could say that inwardly. We could say that outwardly. And so... We, we do tend to, to project onto others. Um, Jung also has a powerful line. He says, that which we don't recognize in ourselves, we will tend to project onto others where we encounter it as demonic. So these are very powerful statements to me. You know, that which we don't fully know in ourselves, we will tend to project outward where we encounter it as demonic. In another place, he talks about we will project it outward and we encounter it as fate. You know, so it's, it's quite, quite powerful statements of what happens. Now this, you know, there are more, a lot of the you know, great plays and dramas in, you know, in the creative side are about these kind of phenomena you know, where, where we don't know ourselves and then somehow the whole, there gets to be this huge drama where we encounter our, our cut-off parts, as it were. So I find this sense of the shadow particularly powerful because it can help point us 
towards places where we don't see so clearly. And I think to that extent, as I mentioned last time, I think it's really uh, helps to unpack with skillful means some of the meaning of ignorance, some of the meaning of ignorance and delusion, which is really the core intention of Buddhist practice is to transform ignorance and delusion. And this helps us, I think, as a concept to point us to look at certain ways. It might help us to look more carefully uh, as we looked at the first time. What kinds of people am I especially reactive towards? Having the concept the shadow might say, uh, okay, Donald, uh, let's look here. <laughs> let's look at this. Let's, let's study my reactions. Or let's look at when do I find something uh, going against my self-image. You know, that might be shadow material. So it invites us to look particularly at the areas of self-image and uh, reactivity, which we can do with our mindfulness practice. And invites us to look and even to open to that territory or to be watchful if we find ourselves being uh, wanting to um, suppress a certain experience. And we can do that in meditation sometimes. Generally, meditation helps us open quite generally to whatever's present. So it's a, it can be a very uh, skillful way to open to shadow material. And I certainly have experienced that quite a bit, and I'm sure many of you have, that, that um, when we just sit and we don't try to control experience, especially when we are just have an open experience to what's there, and this is probably most evident when we do retreats, that we can actually, uh, in a sense, give room. Because ultimately, I think when we say, how do we practice with the shadow, when I was trying to think very simply of it, I could say we do two things. We have to access the shadow. And then when we access it, we can transform the shadow by presence and compassion, basically. When we, access, when we have access to shadow, then it's possible to transform it and to use the energies in a positive way. So I may, um, you know, if I have anger as part of my shadow area, and I think personally this has been, I think, part of my own history, personal history, that uh, I could sit in meditation and sometimes uh, have anger come up. And in meditation, we try to just be present with whatever's there. It's in a way, a way of accessing. We can access, uh, did you have a question of clarification? Well, uh, maybe a clarification if it's a larger question, we can wait for it. Yeah, please. It's just the whole self-image thing, and I'm not sure I can quite articulate it, but it's stewing around. If something is part of a self-image, say like somebody has a self-image that anger, like, yeah, I'm a really angry person. Yeah. So that's consistent with their self-image, but it's not necessarily wholesome. Yeah. It seems shadow to me. Yeah, so for that person, I'm a really angry person. That person's shadow may be the person's, what, empathy or compassion, or the ability to be peaceful. You know, so the shadow can be uh, one person's shadow, maybe another person's clearly felt experience. But can this, I guess, can the self-image itself be a shadow? Um, um, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, one of the ways that talking about the shadow connects with Buddhist practice is on the focus of the self. And what we're really being directed to is seeing where there's a fixated sense of self. Shadow is one way that that gets fixated, you know, that it can get fixated. But it really, ultimately, um, our practice would suggest that uh, any fixated sense of self and self-image can be a shadow in a certain way that it may be hiding some of our deeper nature. You know, so that's, that's, that's helpful in that way. So if I'm, if I'm meditating and anger comes up, I may be able to open to anger in meditation. I may be able to uh, recognize, and that's been interesting for me, maybe for some of you, because in a way meditation just gives this open space which is allowing. It's allowing of things to just uh, enter. In that sense, it's taking some of the control off taking some of the caps off that we often have in our experience. It's for that reason that other 
uh, means of accessing the shadow are those where, in a sense, we give up a certain amount of control. You know, so dreams. None of us are tightly monitoring our dreams, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and so in dreams, shadow material can surface more easily. Sometimes we, you know, we can use art for that reason as well. We can, we can work with the creative process, and that's a way of accessing shadow as well. We can also do that in ritual or ceremony, something where we almost go into another part of ourselves, where we, we lose the usual sense of our uh, controlling self-image, let's say, where, where it's more of an open space. That's, those are ways of ac- accessing, the, um, accessing the shadow. So then what is the collective shadow? <laughs> We've talked about the personal shadow. What is the collective shadow? And again, I think we could have kind of a collective shadow for the, uh, could be for, in a sense, for a family, an organization, or a society. I'm especially talking about the more social shadow here. And I'll come back to try to tie this to the individual because I think uh, a society has a shadow that we can call a collective shadow, but we all are part of that. We all partake of that. We get, uh, as it were, conditioned by the society. So part of our work is not just to deal with the personal shadow, my anger, my anxiety, but we, we also have the collective shadow internalized in ourselves. So I'll, I'll say uh, more about that and try to connect it. All of this I want to try to connect personally, but some of it may inspire you, for example, to think of how does the collective shadow or how does the shadow live in my family? Or how does it live in my organization? Because there you might actually be able to help uh, access the shadow. You might be able to take that role or you might be able at least to hold in that way. You know, say, you know, like, okay, here's my organization and, uh, you know, what's the shadow? Well, it's, it's that, some, we use phrases like the elephant in the middle of the room, right? That's that's really the shadow, you know. We, you know, a lot of organizations, for example, they can't deal with conflict, and so people's grudges between each other go underground, right? You know, and you might have some very minor discussion, and it becomes this raging fight because no one's dealt with the shadow for ten years. (laughs) Any of this familiar? (laughs) I'm just uh, laying out the map. So, uh, and this is, and if you have a feeling that this is a lot, it is. <laughs> it's, a lot it's a lot to contemplate this. I just, I just want to recognize that. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff. And when we look honestly at shadow and society and ourselves and families and so forth, it can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes because it feels, oh my God, the veils are down. Oh my God, look at it. It's just, and we, which is actually, we can do this at our own pace, but it really, to me, is unpacking part of the meaning, the deeper meaning of our practice, which is to transform ignorance. That is not a mild <coughs> project. That is not a small thing. It's something that, we, that in working with these teachings, that, as it were, horizon opens up, this very powerful horizon of uh, coming to uh, greater depths of knowing ourselves and knowing our world. So the collective shadow, I think, can be defined pretty simply as that which doesn't match the self-image of a society. <coughs> or it could be a family, that which doesn't match the self-image. So societies also have fixated self-images that become obstructions to greater knowledge and greater compassion. Not hard to see what those might be you know, in our society. Not hard to see how um, our self-image doesn't always match the reality. You know, and I think... Uh, a while ago, maybe uh, one or two, Fourth of July's ago, I gave a talk on sort of the beauty of the, uh, we might call it the American intention, and the shadow connected with it. And there's beautiful, beautiful impulses, you know, of democracy, equality, justice, and so forth. And we know that from the start, there have been shadow. There's been shadow material. And part of what renews democracy, I think, to me, from my observation, that is the potential partly opened up with the current administration, is that there's some potential to deal with the shadow. Some potential. Um, yeah. 
some potential, limited, you know, and that's, that's a big challenge right now because, but there's some more potential. But I think that there comes this, uh, all of the people who've taken seriously the uh, deeper impulses of, what, of the human condition, in this case I'm meaning the deeper impulses of democracy, have said we need to look carefully at things. So, so there's a, let me see where this is, there's a passage from um, uh, Walt Whitman uh, wrote this beautiful text in 1871 called Democratic Vistas, which you might want to look at. And he was this tremendous poet and champion of democracy and he said he felt after the Civil War there were shadows developing. And he was kind of appalled. He was, you know, on many, on many levels. And he said this about uh, kind of what we might, he didn't use the word shadow, of course, because the term hadn't been invented at that point. But he said this, we had best look our time searchingly in the face like a physician diagnosing some deep disease. He said we have to look carefully at, at our society. Uh, Shanti Deva in the 8th century, one of the great uh, Buddhist teachers, Try, I think, connected the problems of the world with fixated sense of self. He said in this way, in the 8th century, this entire world is disturbed by insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. This entire world is disturbed by insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. So, a society will have a self-image and certain things don't fit you know, where certain things are pushed to the margins, you know, and literally certain people are pushed to the margins, right? You know, uh, all the groups of people who've been marginalized, they're relegated to the shadows, so people don't know about them. So periodically, in the U.S., there are rediscoveries of poverty. <laughs> the people who were poor knew that they were poor. <laughs> It was not shadow material for them, but for the mainstream, uh, what's on the margins is shadow material. You know? for, and sometimes it's quite deliberate, you know, as in when we, and I'm, uh, I, I, in talking about this, I don't mean to be partisan politically, because I think both parties partake of the shadow material. So, for example, it's shadow material when as a policy, we refuse to uh, acknowledge how many people die in Iraq. That's shadow. That's deliberately saying this will remain part of our ignorance and to have, not have footage on the news and so forth. And that's deliberately denying something, creating a shadow. And we do that a lot as a society. So these are shadow phenomena. A lot of the shadow phenomena collectively comes from past pain which can't be dealt with skillfully. And so the legacy of slavery sets up enormous shadow materials. Yeah, the, the near genocide of Native Americans, all sorts of shadow phenomena. When you find, uh, you know, continuation of poverty among African Americans, it's shadow material. You know, and of course, the, sometimes the self-image of society says, no, it's not shadow material, they're just irresponsible. Right? They're just irresponsible and often lawless, you know, where they are taking advantage of welfare. That's shadow material. It's some kind of, it doesn't fit the self-image. Not to say that there aren't questions of responsibility and so forth, but it gets murky, doesn't it? You know? Or when Native Americans have a high rate of alcoholism, you know, and die prematurely. That's shadow material. Or when, um, after World War II, uh, Germans, young Germans in school, uh, learn almost nothing about the Holocaust for 30 years. And, and again, it's not so much to blame. It comes, again, I want to take it back to the simplicity of being unable to be present with a particular experience or reality. So I think from that point of view, shadow material is quite simple. It doesn't fit the self-image and it's hard to deal with. And, the, and what it points to is that the way to work with it is somehow 
to bring awareness and compassion and presence to a given part of our experience or a given uh, social phenomenon. So I think it's quite simple in that way. You know, we can understand the collective shadow and how to deal with it or the personal shadow and how to deal with it very, very simply. But it's very hard. Simple doesn't mean easy. It just means that the basic way things occur is pretty simple. You know, like the Buddha was able to analyze all of human suffering and the roots of suffering in more or less four or five sentences. It has a simple logic, but it's hard to manifest. But the simplicity is helpful because we can have a lot of clarity um, <clears throat> on that level. So maybe just one more, one or two more words about what, what are collective shadow phenomena. I mentioned last time that phenomena of projection. I talked a little bit about it. And last time I, I read some from my friend Courtney's material on being blind and receiving the projections of others who are uncomfortable about physical disability. That is collective shadow material as well. We have a certain amount of collective shadow material about disability, about aging, about death, that, and, and, and it's kind of, that's changing some, right? Some of that's changing, but that would, be, that would be shadow material. But we will tend, when we encounter uh, particular people, to project onto others. So I talked about that phenomenon of projection, where we might project our beautiful parts onto others and not recognize them ourselves. We project, as I mentioned, we project our brilliance onto the stars. We project our, we might project a lot onto spiritual teachers. I think in this particular community we do a lot of things which de-emphasize that, but it still happen, can happen a lot. <clears throat> I think um, if you actually did a study of the dreams of people who go to Spirit Rock, you would find enormous amount of dreams involving Jack Cornfield. <laughs> <laughs> and, and others. I'm, I'm probably in a few dreams myself. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, uh, you know, the, so there's a lot of, there can be a lot of projection of the spiritual teachers. We can sometimes give away our authority, our sense of being wise. Um, I think there's tremendous projection onto Obama. You think about it. Probably as much projection as we could imagine. Can you imagine that person having all these projections on, on who he might be, both positive and negative? One of the clearest ways that we project is when we project onto enemies. Suddenly, the people who are enemies or opponents have utterly no good qualities. Have you noticed that? <laughs> You're in a conflict with someone. The person is a total collection of negative qualities. <laughs> you know. Uh, when, study, you know, that's, so we study what happens when you're in a conflict with someone. That's shadow material also. Very interesting, isn't it? Have you noticed that? The person has, you may have remembered some positive qualities earlier, but at the moment of conflict, zero positive qualities, often. I mean, not always. I mean, I'm sure sometimes some of us are quite, probably quite mature in how we work with conflicts, but sometimes we're not. <laughs> so, and this reaches an extreme in the process of how uh, societies create enemies and demonize. And there's a powerful book, which I have brought in, but haven't looked, shared with you, called Faces of the Enemy by Sam Keen. Beautiful book called Reflections of the Hostile Imagination. And he has a lot of the propaganda posters in here of what we do with enemies, of how the enemies become, uh, fit into all sorts of uh, categories. You know, this is a, has a lot of the, propaganda posters of the 20th century from all sides, you know? So you find the enemy becomes uh, an animal, a barbarian, an enemy of God, you know, a reptile, uh, a, uh, someone who commits uh, atrocities, and so forth. And again, there can be a factual basis to this. You know, it's not all, you know, typically what projection means is it seizes on some facts and exaggerates it and connects it with our own unconscious stuff. So I'll just read one passage here. 
from him. This is how, this is a beautiful passage near the beginning of the book. He says, how do you create an enemy? And he's particularly thinking of the way we do this as a society. Start with an empty canvas. Sketch in brutal outline the forms of men, women, and children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own disowned darkness with a wide brush and stain the strangers with the sinister hue of the shadow. Trace onto the face of the enemy the greed, hatred, carelessness you dare not claim as your own. Obscure the sweet individuality of each face. Erase all hints of the myriad loves, hopes, fears that play through the kaleidoscope of every finite heart. Twist the smile until it forms the downward arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bones until only the abstract skeleton of death remains. Exaggerate each feature until a human being is metamorphosed into beast vermin insect. Fill in the background with malignant figures from ancient nightmares, devils, demons, uh, myriad madons of evil. I don't know what that word is. Anyway, when your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, slaughter, without shame. The thing you destroy will have become merely an enemy of God, an impediment to the sacred dialectic of history. Yeah, so there's a lot there. There's a lot there. So how do we work with the collective shadow? And I'll, I'll just be, I'll be on the brief side here. Ultimately, it's to find skillful ways, whether at a personal or collective level, to bring material to awareness. Could be as simple as there's shadow material in an organization, and you, and you might take initiative and say, let's talk about it. <laughs> Hasn't been talked about for two years. Let's talk about that. That would be to work with the shadow. Bring it to awareness, create conditions where it can be talked about respectfully. That would be doing shadow work in an organization or a family. Or find skillful ways, you know, something that we do in some organizations I've been part of, something as simple as having a one or two day retreat where one gets away from the demands of everyday uh, busyness can give a space where sometimes things which haven't been talked about come out. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's one way to work with the shadow. So ultimately, it's to be able to uh, bring something to awareness and set up the conditions so it can be treated with relative compassion and safety and wisdom. And then when one accesses that, it has a certain way that when we're present to shadow material, with awareness and compassion, it tends over time to heal it and transform it and work with the shadow energies so that they become transformed. So my fear of anger that makes anger shadow material may make it harder for me to stand up for what's right, maybe harder for me to stand up for myself, maybe harder to stand up for justice in an organization if I uh, can't deal with anger well, right? And so when we access the anger and transform it, I might find a way to work with anger skillfully in a way that doesn't hurt others and lets me access some of that energy for fairness, which is sometimes connected with anger. So you can see that accessing the shadow there expands me in my capacities. And when I don't do that, I may be fearful about standing up for something that... that um, calls for fairness or justice. In societies, it's been done in a variety of ways. There have been things like truth commissions, there have been uh, uh, formal apologies, uh, there have been reparation payments like that the U.S. paid to the Japanese who were interned. Uh, there were reparation payments given by the German government to, to, uh, to Jews after World War II. That's not exactly going into the shadow material fully, but it's starting to open to it. More fully, there can be uh, uh, truth commissions and tribunals. You know, and one of them, which I've learned about, that probably I think is the fullest example of this in, in the history of the world, is what happened in South Africa. And I was fortunate to spend some time, 
think about eight or nine years ago, with one of the 15 commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a man named uh, Blessing Bongami Finca. I was at a, a gathering at the uh, Trappist Monastery in Kentucky called the Abbey of Gethsemane. Uh, there was a group called the Thomas Merton Foundation. Thomas Merton was a great Catholic contemplative who bridged East and West. How many of you know about Merton? Beautiful person. And I used to live in Kentucky, so I spent a lot of time going out to the monastery, and I got to know so, uh, a number of the monks and some of the nuns at the nearby Sisters of Loretto uh, convent. And uh, I was invited to this gathering uh, of people bring, bringing together uh, spirituality and social action. An amazing gathering. Uh, I met some wonderful people. Helen Prejean was there. Uh, a Nobel laureate from Argentina, uh, Adolfo Perez Esquivel was there. There were several people from South Africa who were uh, in leading positions in the government. They, they were actually the equivalent of something like governors of provinces, and I got to spend time with them. And I, my experience was a Buddhist peace fellowship in Berkeley, California, <laughs> so but a little more modest. But, but, but still, I, I, I was there, and I spent time with... Uh, uh, Blessing, who was, uh, had been an activist with the ANC, was a minister, is a minister, and also a governor of a state, an equivalent of a state, I think, in uh, Natal. And he, I did an interview with him about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was later published and found out about it. And I think I'll be really brief now be, to open up time for our talking together. I could talk a long time about that. The interview was in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Journal, I think uh, from about fall 2001, I think. And I asked him about his experience, and he said, maybe I'll just read a few passages to, he said it was, it was basically setting up conditions where people could simply be aware of what had happened under the apartheid regime. Simply to be aware and to listen. It was led by Desmond Tutu, who is this amazing being. Some of you have probably seen him on television, or maybe some of you have met him or seen him in live, but just trying to set up the situation was one where there was a, a, a situation of listening, just to open up to what happened, which was immense, of course. You know, there were um, blessings said that it was, it was an experience, it lasted for six years. He listened for six years of testimonies, you know, and he, he said this, he said, uh, um, I confess that having been a political activist myself for many years, I thought that I knew it all. I thought that I would not be affected as much as I was. So in a, in, so in a sense, I was not very well prepared for what I was confronted with, but I was lucky to have a lot of support from my own immediate community of faith that propelled me forward from that day. There was also a kind of unseen support in the prayers that poured in for the, work of the work, for the work of the commission. We would get messages coming from all over the world all the time. You know, so he was, they were just listening. And he talked about how the many levels this worked on, just people who had never told their stories, told them in a, in a, in a situation of respect. He said there was tremendous personal healing that occurred for people who had never told their stories. In some cases, they had never had closure. They didn't know whether a loved one was really still alive or dead. And just hearing the stories, it went on for six years. I think it was, there was an uh, enormous amount. I think they were, it went on for six years. They took testimonies from 21,000 people over those years. A lot of it was televised publicly on the spot. You know, and so South Africans listened to this for many years. I think it had a tremendous role in helping to heal and reach reconciliation. Very incomplete. There, it went further than anything. It still had a ways to go in many ways. That we'd say that. Um, and so that would be an example. Or it might be another example. Might be I've learned a lot. I'll just end with this one other example. I've learned a lot from Joanna Macy, who has beautiful work. I think her work is really skillful work that can be brought to the level of an organization or a group of how to work with shadow material. You know? And I've seen, I've seen her in uh, action with one organization 
uh, that I'll keep somewhat fictitious, the identity of. But I saw her work with an organization that had been split by conflict. People couldn't talk to each other, couldn't work with it. There was a, We could call that shadow material. And she took the lead just for one day in working with this group and created a situation where people, and doing it through ritual, she did it in a very skillful way. First, people got in touch with what they appreciated about the organization. They got in touch with their gratitude, what was positive. She finds that very, very crucial to do first before you go into the hard territory. Really emphasize, and so when she does this formally, she has four phases for working with shadow material. First is appreciation and gratitude. The second would be finding skillful ways to go into the territory with certain tools. We, she calls that sometimes opening to the pain. The third phase is working with the pain using different tools and taking the pain as a way to learn more about interdependence and compassion and wisdom. And then fourthly, finding out how to bring that further into one's, uh, what comes next in one's life with a given situation. And so I saw that with this organization one day of doing this work and the ice was broken. And without that, it may have stayed stuck and it's possible the organization, which was this beautiful organization, may have folded. And working with the shadow material in that way helped to uh, access the material in a way that was workable and people had tools. And it took uh, help, facilitation that went on for about another um, three months or so to work with it. But it gives an example that it really is ultimately the same tools that we develop in meditation that are crucial for working the shadow, that we cultivate just sitting here, just working with this practice, the ability to be with what is uncomfortable, the ability to be with what's beautiful and hang out with wonderful experiences so you have the confidence and knowledge that the hard stuff is not all you are. You have a sense, oh, that's there, but I also have this beauty, I have this wisdom, I have these wonderful experiences, that's crucial. We're working with that. So that's what Joanna was pointing to. And we cultivate the ability to be aware, to open to difficult stuff. So even when you're just opening to a knee pain and doing that skillfully, you're cultivating the ability that transfers into working with bigger stuff. So I think I'll end here and, um, and maybe just with a, a few moments of silence to my encouragement is just, I hope this inspires us to explore this territory together. Um, pers the personal stuff, the collective stuff, and how, it, how they uh, interpenetrate. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or so. This is from a psychologist named Hal Zena Bennett. The shadow self is the part of ourselves that we would just as soon keep buried. The challenge comes when we, when we discover that it is a tremendous drain on our energy to keep this aspect of ourselves hidden. Once we get to know the shadow self, it can become an invaluable source of wisdom, compassion, and insight. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. So further reflections, questions, accessing of the shadow. Yeah, please. Uh, I wanted to thank you for a um, very insightful, enlightening presentation over the past three weeks. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been fun to share. I, uh, I think I can really tell people are attentive. And it's a lot, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, three weeks is just the beginning. Yeah, please. Yeah. Please. Yeah. I think one of the most pervasive uh, forms that I can think of of the shadow in our society is how many um, people come back from the military with physical and mental uh, problems, and, and it's just not acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
to everyone here. It's, it's how many part of the shadow is just the lack of acknowledgement of the uh, cost of war, the injuries, the, you know, I think, I mean, you've probably read as well as I have the, uh, I think there have been, um, it's many hundreds of suicides a year. It's, it's, it's to the point where in the last few years it's been many, many more soldiers have died from suicide than have died from uh, combat, as it were. Yeah. With, uh, you know, probably tens of thousands of wounded. You know, not, not publicized too much. Please, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about the personal shadow. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, for an example, I, let's say I'm a person who has repressed anger. Yeah. And so I know you, and I see you as an angry person yeah. because I can't see it in myself. Yeah. So how do you discern if it's my if it's me projecting my shadow onto you, or if it's actually your anger? If I tell yeah. you, I think you're an angry. Person. Yeah. So the question is, when how do we uh, know that there's projection going on as opposed to just clear discernment of this angry person out there? <laughs> <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, well, if, if, we think, if we think that if we're actually projecting, we will tend to think that we're not. But <laughs> uh, I think a key is seeing if there's reactivity. That's going to be a key with, with so much of this, is to see, is there a charge? Charge is a sign that there's something underneath the surface. Charge or reactivity. Typically, it's going to be mixed. There's going to be, we can uh, discern a really angry person out there, and there's some obvious, accurate observation that uh, the problem is accurate observation tends to hook us into thinking there's nothing else but accurate observation, right? And so the key is to see whether there's reactivity. In other words, when I see this person, am I, is there a lot of commentary in my mind? Do I think about it for a long time after the experience? That would be a sign that there's some shadow material. Does my body tense up? Do I have a lot of mental commentary about that? Yeah, please. And then in, I'll go first in the front. Oh, no, you had your hand up first, so I'll go to you and then, was, then in the front. Okay. Um, are there any devices or practices where one can not accept projection, either personally or an organization or even a culture for that matter. Yeah. What can you do to not absorb the projection? Yeah. Uh, what question is, what can one do if one feels like one's getting projections, as we all get uh, from individuals? They can, be, they can be more personal. They can be based on more uh, group or, you know, our, as it were, our being part of a group could be uh, whatever, ethnic group, could be age, could be gender, could be, you know, I read from um, uh, Courtney, my friend who is blind, she actually has, um, let's see, she had some passages here. Um, for the, the first step is just noticing that their projections actually it's it's a, it's a, it's a um, it's a challenging task to do that the first thing is to just notice that there might be projections you know so it's to notice some of that process so for example a courtney blind person noticed really had to study her projection it takes time she said um, she had to see that she was uh, fitting in and kind of camouflaging her blindness so other people wouldn't even know. She said she had a, a boyfriend for two years who didn't even know she was blind. <laughs> uh, she, he thought she was because she didn't really, it was part of the shadow stuff, you know, and because she had learned to just make pretend she was normal. And she has a guide dog, but uh, friends often think that she's training the dog, you know. And so, um, she had, so she had to uh, start to be aware of our, uh, her own tendencies to internalize, to projection. 
that's huge. You know, I mean, that might, you know, I've had friends who are African Americans who studied, have studied for years how to work with what they call internalized racism, you know, because uh, we do, the projections aren't just neutral, we absorb them. You know, it could be, so it might be, how do you work with projections? Most of us probably have done this quite a bit. How do you work with projections of, uh, related to gender? You know, you know, you're getting certain projections. How do you deal with those? So what do we do? How do you work with those kind of projections? There, you know, you might resist them, right? You might, uh, some, you know, um, my mother is here. Can I tell a story from, that you've told me? <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not real risque. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> well, so you were very conscious at a young age of, of wanting to break out of uh, projections of women's roles, and so you refused to type. Is that okay to tell? <laughs> and just, just said, I am not going to put myself in a position where I may have to get a job as a secretary, right? That is, you know, that's one way of resisting projections. What, what are some other ways that people might think of doing that? So a lot of it's studying it, noticing it. If you actually find someone projecting on you and you tell them, please stop your projections, <laughs> that may not always succeed, <laughs> you know. Uh, so interpersonally, it gets complicated. <clears throat> the first step is seeing how you've internalized things and seeing what the projections are. And, if you, and then, you know, interpersonally, it depends on the nature of the relationship, right? How, whether, how you can talk to someone. If you notice really clearly, you know, I'm thinking of um, uh, if, if, if there's a lot of friendship, sometimes you can just tell people, you know, when you say that, it tends to reinforce my own internalization of the projection. So Courtney might tell people, when you make these kind of stereotypical comments about my blindness, it tends to make me go a certain place. And could you use other language? Or African-American friends who might say, you know, when you, um, you know, I, I've had interactions with friends who, are, who I co-teach with, and we've had to work with some of this material. I may uh, take um, a certain uh, more responsibility, let's say, and friend might say, it has to be a pretty good relationship to say this, might say, you know, uh, I have to say when you tend to speak first, partly as a man, partly in, so in other ways, I te it tends to trigger my internalized stuff about not being quite so competent, mm -hmm. you know? And so we have those dialogues, they, those, those are hard discussions sometimes with friends, and it needs a lot of uh, trust, right? But sometimes actually speaking up on the spot about how someone speaks can be a good way to, good way to do it. Yeah. So there's a lot there. We could take, we could take a long time on that one. Maybe, uh, maybe time for one more. Did you still have a question? Well, <laughs> or a comment? I think it's related to what you Okay. Um, Louder. It was related to what was said prior, to, so I don't know if it's helpful now. But um, I was going to say, because we, we were talking about the projection how do you know when it's real anger or yeah. whatever, and, and when it's um, it's coming from you and you're putting it there? And I was going to ask you if it might be when you really feel that feeling of kind of aversion, mm -hmm. and you really um, would that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the question was continuing that really important question about how we can distinguish between just uh, projection and clear seeing. And we don't always, I have to say that studying our own projections and studying this material is subtle. It's not like we just look at the territory and everything gets clear. It can take, uh, can take uh, time. Can sometimes, the, you know, if to really work with this thoroughly, it can take years. Uh, is generally both going on in a way? Yeah, yeah. If, so if I notice uh, an angry person and... Uh, and I find myself reacting really strongly. The question was, would, it, would one way of noticing it being if I'm really aversive, you know, strong aversion? That might be a sign. Um, 
that there's some material that I'm, basically any kind of reactivity is going to suggest that there's something there which I'm not quite aware of. Because when there's full awareness and wisdom and compassion, we're not reactive. That fullness is, a, is something we experience sometimes. And we probably each have some areas of our lives where we once were reactive, where we're not now. You know, and so we can know that difference. What does it mean to work with uh, a, situ- a kind of situation? Like could be someone saying something to me. Could be someone treating something to me, whereas five years ago I would have gone off the wall and now I kind of am calm and I can still respond and stand up, but it's not reactive in the same way. So looking at the reactivity is key. If there's a lot of aversion, mental commentary, there might be even be, you know, looking for the language is helpful because there's going to be some self-image connected with this. Where there's the shadow, there's a self-image. There's a structure of self, we might say a kind of fixated sense of self. And so any comments like saying, oh, that person is dot, 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 that would be a sign. So you see it's subtle, right? It's like we're a little bit detectives. <laughs> we follow a trail to look into this stuff, which is, that's the nature of looking for what's beneath the surface. Yeah. It seems it gets subtler. Yeah. It gets, the comment was, it gets subtler and subtler. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. I think Marty's wanting to have the last last word. undoubtedly going to be both of you. Uh, So an entree can be asking the person, uh, I would like to have, or would you be willing to have a difficult conversation? (laughs) (laughs) Now, in in the group that I'm part of, the professional group, this has become something that everybody is aware of, that difficult conversations, we had a training on it. So then it sort of opens the way for being able to yeah. use that as an entree. Yeah, so the, everyone hear the, hear the comment? I've had conversations, <laughs> which have been very enlightening. So in a sense, that what Marty is suggesting in, in saying that in her professional group, there's a kind of a practice where, we, where it's part of the culture, we might yes. say, to be able to ask, would you be willing to have a difficult conversation? And in a sense, what your group is doing is you are adopting a kind of shadow practice as something that you regularly want to be able to do. And that's, that's exactly what we're pointing to. Because it can be just, just, it can be a regular practice. It's once you acknowledge the shadow as a person or a group, you might want to find ways to regularly go there. And again, it's not, last comment, not at all to say that when you are reactive and projecting on another, that there's not a lot of stuff of the other person. The other person can be angry, acting out, needs to take responsibility, etc. You know, so we can project, we can project onto people who need to be also responsible. Projection doesn't mean the other person is not responsible or not doing all sorts of things that need shifting. Yeah, yeah there can be mutual projection. So let's just uh, sit for 30 seconds to close. And I'll just invite us to sit with what may have felt most helpful and any concrete ways that you'll take this into your own practice, into your own lives. So we remember that we do these explorations, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the fruits of our time together out into the world for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. So... 
Thank you so much for your attention these three weeks, and see you in three weeks. Thank you. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.